and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 514th show of ROI. Our guest for today is Dr. Oren Kolodny from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who's going to talk about a sneaky theory of where language came from. Joining us for the second segment of our show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Oren. Uh, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me, and I'm uh, happy to be here. We are very excited to have you. Um, the first segment of the show is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give the listeners just a little bit of background into what the subject's going to be. So can you start us off talking about what language is and how it works? And that's, that sounds like an innocent question, right? It would seem trivial, but actually that in itself is a highly debated topic. And if you ask different people, even within the discipline of linguistics, they'll give you pretty uh, extreme diverse answers to that. And people have done their whole careers arguing uh, what is the proper way to be thinking about language. So I'll try to put things a little bit into order. Very uh, broadly, you can uh, distinguish two major approaches within the linguistics about to thinking about language. One is a formalist approach, and it assumes or suggests that language is a formal set of rules, and it allows, it that defines what are well-formed utterances and what aren't. And many of the proponents of this approach, uh, Chomsky is, uh, is a major one, uh, would argue that language is inherently syntax, uh, 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 um, question of syntax, and has little to do in itself with communication. It's first and foremost um, tool for internal thought or for making um, order in one perception of the world or things like that. And in, in this view, communication through language is an itinerary with uh, original of the, um, destiny or uh, the thing that it initially is all about. Um, a different, a very different approach is a functionalist approach that views uh, language as a, as a tool for communication where individuals interact and exchange messages with one another. And the point of language is just to uh, act as a modality, as a sort of um, communication channel in which I can send messages to another, and someone else receives those messages, responds to them, and so on. Uh, in our in hour, and I'm going to talk primarily about, uh, about one study that I published together with uh, co-author Shimon Edelman, who was also my PC advisor, or co-advisor, and we offer uh, a third perspective on language, which is close to the functionalist approach in SM, but interested put the emphasis not so much on the well-formedness of the messages being transmitted between individuals, but rather use language as a tool for influencing state, the internal state of another, and emphasize language as a means of communication. 
but uh, it's a slightly less simplistic than the commonly uh, presented view of functionalism, and that is we yes, that language relies inherently on a huge um, expense of at least partially common knowledge and partially common knowledge between the um, com- the people communicating with one another. So language is not all about well-formedness of uh, the messages messages being transferred, but rather um, it evokes much um, existent knowledge in that that the other person communicating with already has, and is designed to change their mind or to provide information or to um, you know conf- to consult about something. But uh, the interaction is merely the edge of a whole iceberg of um, an interaction between individuals or between, you know, now that we have mass communication, it can be many, many individuals. But the essence is about communication and that, and, and the language itself is a tool for influencing enough. Okay. Well, I'm, we uh, have... I'm hoping this uh, sort of makes sense. Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's a good start. Um, I would uh, suggest that if I had to summarize what language is in, in just a few sentences, this is sort of what I would offer. And I would like to emphasize that this is in no respect a rigorous um, summary. So if you ask 10 linguists what language is, you'll probably get 10 different, slightly different answers. So we have a lot more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the second segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Oren Kolodny from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We're talking about a sneaky theory of where language came from. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Bernard and Rick Sweet. And Brett, as a big fan of language, why don't you start us off? Gladly. So, Oren, you talk uh, in your paper about the sneaky theory, and it involves um, creation of tools. So can you uh, give us a quick uh, recap of the paper for those of us who haven't read it? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a little bit of background. When we approached this question, our first question was, as we were hiking, backpacking together, actually, was, what's the view of language? What is the question that it, it's language and its evolution and the study of language is and how it came about is a profound thing. And, you know, some would argue that this was what uh, set us apart from all of the rest of the animal world. And the question we would like to ask is, 
how did this capacity evolve? How did how come only humans have language as you know? And for that, we first need to define what language is. So I tried to suggest a perspective on that, but when, if you but that's not enough. That's not a working hypothesis about what we should be asking concretely if we want to ask about its evolution. I mean, to ask about something's evolution, you need to ask what is it? What is the essence of it? And we'd like to suggest a few aspects that we think are crucial for language. And, and I mean, I'm not, I don't care too much about the definitions, but if we're trying to shoot for what are we looking for, we're looking for uh, a system of regularity that uh, includes things like long-distance dependencies, where you have uh, com- complex structures, uh, grammatical structures that uh, language includes. Uh, you have a system of communication. You have uh, something that is inherently hierarchical and structured with importance to sequence. What is primarily is particularly interesting when you compare it and you contrast it to what animals have in communication. Most animal communication systems don't have particular importance to order, to sequential order um, in utterances. So, for example, uh, a dog can growl and then bark and then grow again, and the meaning would be pretty much the same as two growls and a bark in any other order. So, so the uh, sequential order and uh, processing of order, both in the production and the interpretation of language, seems like a crucial, a key aspect of it. And so armed with this idea of what language is, we can then go and ask questions about, okay, how could it have evolved? And when we looked at existing theories about how it evolved, many of them, uh, each of them seems to us to suffer from some from, from, um, fundamental straw. One, for example, is that many hypotheses about what language is all about suggest that it's for something for which you need full-fledged language. And evolution can't work on something, on, on, a, on a situation like that. For example, um, thinking that language evolved in order to plan uh, ahead into the future, or uh, something like a, you know, a, a joint mastodon hunt, seems um, odd, because in order to plan together a mastodon hunt, we already need fully-fledged language. And it's very hard to come up with a scenario where an incremental improvement in a communication modality would um, lead to that, because you need every increment along the way to be adaptive in itself. And so, and that's one example. Others include uh, uh, the gossip theory, where language is um, evolved in order to compensate uh, for the fact that the uh, human group size became larger and larger, and you couldn't interact with everyone personally, so you needed to gain information about other individuals through gossip or through, you know, uh, linguistic interaction with other individuals that tell you about that guy who did so-and-so when you weren't around, things like that. But again, that requires full-fledged language already. So the first thing that we were interested in asking is what is the ecological behavioral context in which the capacity of language could have evolved? Um, And we could uh, highlight characteristics of that context. So it needs to be for example, a scenario where everyone's, so first of all, incremental improvement, uh, it, it needs to start from scratch, from you know, a communica- communication mode that doesn't have these essentials of language. 
it needs to be a scenario where every incremental improvement along the way provides some fitness benefit. It needs there to be a scenario where fitness is involved. So you need to really gain an advantage from being able to communicate properly uh, with another for natural selection to operate on something like this. Um, and and because sort of che- language is cheap, right? You can you can easily cheat in language. You can say whatever you want, and, and there's no inherent honesty mechanism. And so the most likely setting in which language might evolve would have been one in which the interests of the, of the, of the communicators are, are aligned with one another. And one such situation is the communication among kings. So if I'm communicating with my son, my fitness is in fact, uh, you know, represented by my son and his or her um, success in, in, in getting right to future offspring. And so our evolutionary interests are completely aligned. And this is the most the, the kind of setting that we, we would be looking for. And finally, um, the last characteristic that we highlighted for the evolutionary of language would be one in which um, the open-endedness and infinite uh, pro- pro- um, productivity of language is of particular use. So I would argue that if I have some evolutionary challenge about which we might want to communicate, but which is fairly constant, then a closed set of utterances might be enough to accommodate that kind of communication. But if I have something like culture, which evolves super fast on evolutionary timescales or on you know, geological timescales, then I need some means of communication about it that isn't, is itself flexible and open-ended enough to accommodate ongoing changes. I'd argue that language is that kind of thing. And so we're looking at, we're, we're that's sort of directing us towards uh, a cultural context in which language could evolve. And finally, what we suggested is that the perhaps most crucial or key element in language is its, its structure, is the fact that it's sequential and hierarchically ordered. And that seems to be key because that doesn't occur in other, in most other animals' communication systems, you can. Um, there are some outliers, for example, bird songs. We can discuss them separately if you like. Uh, but that seems crucial. And so, what we suggest is that language could have evolved in the context in which sequential processing of information was necessary and fitness was highly involved. And we suggest that the instruction of tool production is such a thing. Okay, Rick. That was a very long answer. It's okay. It was a very, it was a very clear answer. Yes, very good. Oran, or, 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 I'd like to uh, sort of like uh, put a flagpole out on uh, evolution. You mentioned that uh, language has structure and it's sequential and it plans in the future. Uh, do you have a theory or some evidence as when the first uh, hominoid type spoken language was? Uh, a reality? The timing in which language evolved is a, is a hard question to answer. I'll try to suggest some, um, to offer some insights about it. So first of all, in the past, people linked language to specific um, morphological features. And one of the motivations for doing that is that morphological features have some um, uh, or we might be able to insert something about when they evolve. So, for example, if you want to delineate where, in, people wanted to delineate where in the brain is the language module, 
and what Hampshire was broken is and broken there is, is is definitely necessary for language and is plays a key role in it. But um, the more you learn about how the uh, brain works and particularly how language is processed and produced, it seems that many many regions in the brain are involved, and it's not something that we can localize to a single location within the brain. And so, a suggestion that a single and, you know, once, if it were true that Broca's area is a language apparatus, then we could look at depressions in skulls, uh, in archaeological remains, or in, in fossilized um, um, skeletons, and ask when do they appear. But uh, that's not the case anyway, So, from what we know about, uh, about brains today. So uh, that approach doesn't work. Another uh, highlighted the importance of the vocal apparatus which, again, we might be able to learn about from studying the evolution of genes. But, um, but again, since we know that language can easily operate on a different modality, such as uh, gestures, and sign language is a fully fed language and, and works just as well, that, again, is not um, the right way to go. Another approach has been that we try to infer and argue that symbolic thought requires language. So that, I don't know. I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm, I'm agnostic about whether that approach holds or not. But you could argue that once you start finding in the archaeological record uh, material artifacts that suggest symbolic thought, maybe that is tethered to linguistic development. Another approach, which I find most convincing, is one that suggests that language um, co-evolved with food production. The first reason that that would be the case is because of our, you know, the, the essence of what we're suggesting, that um, food production is something that's hard to learn, and particularly I'm thinking about stone tools, but that's, this is true for other tools as well. Um, it requires a lot of practice, and in stone production, it's super hard to reach um, high-quality results without instruction. And so this is a setting in which if this had important sensitive consequences, people would communicate about quite a bit. And uh, inherently, the process of, of stone food production, apart um, anything beyond the most simple stone tools that were produced in, uh, in the earliest of uh, uh, Olduvai, is the, the you know, technoculture that's mostly associated with the site, um, it, it's a... Uh, Process of production that requires sequential thought, and as, as you proceed to later periods uh, through the Middle Paleolithic, you reach tools that require understanding of hierarchies and setting of sub goals. So, in producing those tools, you need to realize that you first need to uh, prepare um, the stone you're hitting in a certain way in order to map it properly and then eventually reach the tool that you want. And people have argued, and I find that quite convincing, that that kind of hierarchical and sequential thought process and planning process would have or could have evolved in parallel to the evolution of language, which shares those features. And now we know also shares many of the brain regions that are activated. So when you produce a complex stone tool, you utilize many of the neural circuits in the brain that you utilize when you're producing uh, you know, a hard uh, to uh, process, to produce and process sentence or paragraph. 
Um, from that, you can start realizing, okay, so can we set boundaries in time to when language evolves? Probably uh, within the recent million years, it must be older than 100,000 years. Um, probably total language can be localized to somewhere near one or one and a half million years ago, and then fully fledged language should um, is likely to have emerged, judging from the complexity of modern human and Neanderthal uh, cultures, approximately in the common ancestor of these two um, species or populations, depending on how you want to view them, which would place it somewhere approximately half a million years ago. Okay. You might now ask, why do I think Neanderthals have language, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that That's a logical question. <laughs> Um, so, so, yeah, my, my, some of, part of my reasoning about how I localize when language evolves relies on the fact that um, our um, most recent ancestor that was common to Neanderthals lived sometime between 400 and 600 years ago. So it's approximately happened a million years ago. And um, the reason I believe Neanderthals had language that's at least qualitatively similar to modern human language is that in, this, in the time frame where the two species overlapped, for example, in the Levant, in the Middle East, uh, approximately between 100,000 years ago and 50,000 years ago, the material culture that they left behind is pretty much the same. So if I find a, um, in a neurological site here in Israel, and I go there and um, carry out an archaeological dig and collect 5,000 pieces of stone, of, of, of naphtha, stone tools from that site and bring it to Professor Rela Hovers, um, the leading or one of the leading archaeologists of this period in this region, she won't be able to tell whether this assemblage was produced by moderns or Neanderthals. The moderns being our lineage and Neanderthals being the sort of sibling, uh, sibling species or sibling competing uh, lineage, whatever, whichever way you want to view them. Suggesting to me that in this time period, they had similar cognitive capacities. And these cognitive capacities suggest, according to their material culture, something that's um, quite complex and includes, among others, those features that I discussed earlier of hierarchical structure and planning and a pretty complex um, construction of things like you know, producing um, a tool that is then tethered to. Uh, a shaft of wood using material that you don't just find in an environment, but rather you need to prepare yourself. Um, glue that you have to produce from um, various elements in environment and go through a whole process of, uh, of, ma- of making it and turning it into effective glue. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. 
ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 514th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Oren Kaladny from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We've been talking about a sneaky theory of where language came from. Our history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners the great Pusutu proverb, Hotza Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.